Last Sunday, we started a new sermon series titled Defining Word, and the word was salvation or save. And uh, among the many things that God saves us from, one of those, of course, is sin, which is our word today. What is sin? Again, a common word, a defining word. I had a friend and neighbor in northern Michigan who, um, oh, I don't know how to say this. He, he uh, distinguished, uh, intelligent man, but uh, was not a believer. And uh, we sometimes would get in conversations, uh, and they were always friendly conversations, sometimes a little bit of banter. One morning as I'm heading into the bakery and he's coming out, we were passing in the street, and he said, morning, Rev, how's business? And I said, people are still sinning. He said, job security. <laughs> you don't hear as much uh, about sin as you might have in the, old, in the days of old time religion. Doesn't mean people are sinning less or more. Perhaps we have overcompensated for an era in which the church was sometimes all too consumed with sin and sin management, which can produce self-righteous people, a scapegoating, the pointing of fingers, unnecessary burdens of shame and guilt, and in some cases, the unnecessary rejection of faith or rebellion against the God of impossibly high standards. One of my brothers, when he was uh, late teens, early 20s, I was afraid he was heading down that road of, of uh, rejection of faith or rebellion against God. Wisconsin had or has this tourism slogan, Escape to Wisconsin. And my brother found a bumper sticker that said Escape to Wisconsin, took a scissors to it, and effectively edited it to say Escape to Sin. I, you might chuckle at that, or you might be horrified by that. I can tell you that uh, God didn't strike him down, his life didn't go off the rails, and... Uh, he is still, uh, he maintains his faith, and God's presence in his life is apparent. And so if my dear brother intended to escape the sin, he didn't get very far. The word sin and all the many related synonyms appear uh, in the Bible thousands of times. But let me assure you that it is not the dominant focus of faith and spirituality. And let's not forget, before we wade into such a heavy topic, that Christ is our Savior and saves us completely from sin and its curse. God forgives all sin. In fact, Scripture says, cast it into the depths of the sea and removes it as far as the east is from the west. That's how far he removes it from us. And promises to remember it no more. You know that scripture says love keeps no record of wrongs. Well, all sin is an affront to God. And while we may have a hard time forgetting when someone has wronged us, God forgives and forgets. His banner over us is love. And so we consider the seriousness of sin in the light of grace and in the light of mercy and compassion. Some of you might wish for a little bit of hellfire and brimstone preaching. I'm sorry to disappoint. I would rather that we be reminded of God who is revealed in Jesus Christ, who reveals to us 
a God, Christ, who is friend of sinners. And only religious people had a problem with that. Think about that. Jesus is the friend of sinners, and only religious people had a problem with that. Let that sink in. The scripture this morning is from Paul's letter to the Galatians, chapter 5, beginning with verse 16. Now, Galatians was one of those letters that I'm sure was not pleasant for Paul to write and probably wasn't easy for uh, the believers in Galatia to hear as well. Paul is uh, not soft on sin, but he takes the church to task for jettisoning the gospel. Essentially, they were teaching and living as though one is saved by observing the law by keeping God's commands. And he warned that if they are trying to be right with God by, uh, by what they do or what they don't do, they have lost the gospel and they have lost Christ. They have fallen from grace. But does it matter how one lives? Absolutely. But not to earn salvation. In the words of the late Dallas Willard, he said, grace is not opposed to earning. It is opposed to... Uh, Grace is opposed to earning. It is not opposed to effort. Paul says that the only thing that counts is faith, expressing itself through love. The entire law is summed up in a single command, love your neighbor as yourself. And then comes the words of today's lesson. Again, Galatians 5, beginning with verse 16. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Some translations say, sinful nature. For the flesh, or sinful nature, desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under law. The acts of the flesh, of the sinful nature, are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance or patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh, sinful nature, with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Thanks be to God. So two things that we should keep clear uh, this morning, the distinction between uh, the sinful nature and sin itself. We all have a sinful nature, an innate propensity to sin. There's no escaping it. Sometimes it's called the flesh, the old man, original sin, meaning the sin nature that we inherited from Adam, our first parent. And no one in this life will ever, in this life, will ever reach a state of sinlessness or perfection. And anyone who thinks that they, uh, who thinks that they have should heed the words of Martin Luther who said, if you think that you've reached a state of, of sinlessness, reach inside your shirt and grab some flesh. If you're still in the flesh, still living and breathing, then 
the flesh, the sinful nature still clings to you. We are all sinners who sin. And Paul gives examples of sin in the lesson this morning. He said sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions and factions. Sounds a bit like the insurrection in our nation's capital this last week. Drunkenness, orgies and the like. This is not by any means meant to be an exhaustive list, but indicative of the kinds of behaviors that are born of the sinful nature. And then Paul adds, I warn you that those who live, this, live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. And he's not, by the way, talking about going to heaven or not, though it may result in that as well. He's, he's, he says they will not inherit the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is both now and not yet. It's the kingdom that is marked by justice and beauty and love and the new community of God. Sin in all its forms defiles, makes things ugly, and destroys community. Some people live in, a, live in or create a hell here and now for themselves and others. By contrast, Paul urges those who are in Christ to live by the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love. Don't, is, don't miss that love is the first fruit of the Spirit mentioned. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And then Paul says, against such things there is no law, no limit. And let's be clear, we're not talking only about becoming nice people, but becoming new creations. The indwelling of Christ in you, empowered by God's Spirit, living in you to live differently. Live this way, and you begin to approximate the kingdom of God, a taste of heaven, a vision of the world to come. And I believe this is what the Apostle John is getting at in the book of Revelation as well. If you live by the sinful nature, if you live by the principles and patterns of this world or of empire, whether it is Babylon or Rome or the nation states of Europe or even America, you reap Armageddon, death and destruction. But if you live by the Spirit and by the principles and ideals of the kingdom of God as Jesus taught, you harvest peace and life. Sin brings a hellish existence here and in the world to come, but the fruit of the Spirit brings life and peace now and in the world to come. So what is sin? Well, the Oxford American Dictionary defines sin as the breaking of divine or moral law. The Bible uses dozens of words for sin, and each carries a different nuance of meaning. I'll spare you all the Hebrew and Greek words, but one of the words for sin, okay, I'll give you this Greek word, it's hamartia, it means to miss the mark. It's translated as sin, hamartia, but it means to miss the mark. The, it's imagery of, of uh, an archery competition. And if the goal is to get a bullseye, if the goal is to get a bullseye every time, perfection, then missing that bullseye, even once, is falling short. It's missing the mark. It's interesting that in, uh, in the Gospels, in two versions of the Lord's Prayer, you know how here, every time we pray the Lord's Prayer, right, in public settings, funerals, weddings, those kinds of things, we always get tripped up when we come to that petition, uh, forgive us our sins, 
trespasses. We hear people, people suddenly mumble words because they don't know what to say there because we all say different things. Here at Zion, we say, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. The first sin is hamartia. Essentially, what it's saying is forgive us when we miss the mark, when we fall short, okay? Uh, another word for, for sin, and by the way, that word appears like 200 times in the New Testament. Another word for sin means to cross the line. Sometimes translated as transgression or disobedience. Uh, God draws a line in the sand, says do not cross, and sin is, ignoring, is, is an ignoring of the no trespassing signs. Still another word for sin is death. And again, this is the word that appears in the second half of that petition. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us, as we forgive those indebted to us, is literally what the Greek says. In other words, the forgiveness is uh, a, surrender, a surrendering of our need to retaliate, canceling the debt that is owed, letting go of the wrongs. And let us be reminded that God expects us to do that with others because he has canceled our debt. Another word for sin is blemished. A blemish is a mark or a defect that ruins the perfection of something. Sin sometimes makes us feel dirty and defiled. It puts a stain on our souls. Let me insert the gospel once again midstream here. Jesus was the spotless Lamb of God who cleanses us, who washes us, who removes every blemish, every spot and wrinkle, and makes us whole. And if there's still any dirt left on, on us, he clothes us in his own robe of righteousness. He covers it all so that no blemish or wrinkle or spot is seen. Yet another word for sin is crookedness, sometimes translated as iniquity, perversity, or depravity. Here, this sense of crookedness, we distort pretty much every... We distort all of God's gifts. We distort our humanity. We distort love. We distort sexuality. We distort justice. We abuse and pervert so many of God's good gifts. And with that image of crooked uh, or bent, Luther said, sin, listen to this, sin is the soul curved in on itself. Sin twists and distorts our humanity. We actually become less human, less the image bearers that we were created to be. It describes a life that is lived inward for oneself instead of lived outward for God and for others. Just look honestly at your heart, your mind, your behavior, how you spend your time, your money, your passions and priorities. Is your life oriented toward God and others or is it oriented toward yourself? Sin is the soul curved in on itself. There are many other words that we could look at for sin, but the bottom line is this. Sin is detrimental to our souls, to our health and well-being, and to our relationship with God, to others, and even to ourselves. And allowed to have free course or reign in our lives, it can lead to a kind of spiritual death we do well to examine our lives and confess what we need to confess daily. Sin robs us of life and joy and peace. And there's a kind of tyranny in living an unexamined life. 
we don't often take time on Sunday morning, unfortunately. It's uh, probably a shortcoming on our part. We fall short that we don't take time often on Sunday mornings for confession of sins and to hear words of absolution. And we can do better. But my encouragement to you as well at home to do often, if not every day, at the end of the day, to do an examine of your life. Where have you fallen short of loving God, of loving others? Um, where have you failed? And confess that. Don't live an unexamined life because sin does damage to us. Even though we're forgiven, it will continue to hinder relationship with God, your, your relationships with others, and your relationship with yourself. If it goes unchecked, if it goes unexamined, unacknowledged, unconfessed. The truly good news is that God is not a distant God, a God to be feared and avoided, a God of wrath and punishment, but a God who is moved by our brokenness and pain in the fullness of the human struggle, and that includes sin. God is not a God of condemnation, but a compassionate God. He forgives, he heals, he mends, he cleanses, he waits, he woos, he restores. Sometimes he even runs to us. God is never surprised. Listen, God is never surprised by our sin. And he can even use it. God is revealed in Christ who is the friend of sinners. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us, God who draws near, God who identifies with us, God who is in solidarity with us, God who knows no sin, who became sin for us, God who died for and because of my sin and the sin of the world. That is a love beyond, beyond all human knowing. I ended last week with John Newton's most well-known, uh, one of his most well-known quotes at the end of his life the man who wrote Amazing Grace. Although my memory's fading, I remember two things very clearly, that I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. We hold these two realities in tension, don't we? Never underestimating our propensity to go astray or surprised by our own sin or the sin of others. And always trusting God's forgiveness and love, which alone saves us. Amen. So I'm going to pray a prayer of confession from our covenant book of worship. It's brief, and then I'm going to give you a few moments of silence. Maybe there's something this morning that you have felt convicted by, uh, something that you know in your life is not right, something you know that you need to uh, get off your chest, confess to God. Take a moment to do that. So let me pray this, and then I'll give you that moment of quiet, and then we'll hear some words of hope. God forgives, and heal God forgives and heals us. We need your healing, merciful God. Give us true repentance. Some sins are plain to us. Some escape us. Some we cannot face. Forgive us. Set us free to hear your word. Set us free to serve you. And I give you a few moments of, of quiet.
hear these words of assurance. Sometimes I can hardly fathom it. Years ago, ages ago, Christ died for my sins and yours. Live with honesty in confession and with, and with such joy in assurance of God's forgiveness that no one will doubt that you really 